All kinds of things divide us, don't they? Everyone stand up if you're able. Everyone stand up. And be ready to put your hand on your head or your hand on your hips. Okay, hands on your hips. Would you rather eat lollies or eat chocolate? Lollies or chocolate? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lollies person myself. <laughs> Would you rather watch Peppa Pig or watch PJ Masks? Yeah, that's a tough one. Would you rather caravan or camp? Oh, I'm a camper. Lots of caravanners here. Would you rather use a Mac or use a PC? This one divides people. Yeah, lots of Mac users here. Or perhaps the most divisive question of all, everyone can sit down. Perhaps the most divisive question of all, I've posed this to our youth before. Who would win a fight out of a lion and a shark in a neutral environment? Who reckons that the lion would win in a neutral environment? Don't ask me what that is, but who reckons that the shark would win? Wow, we are divided. There aren't many bigger questions than that one in the grand scheme of things. But we've seen how food divides us, accommodation divides us, technology divides us, and stupid questions, or the answer to stupid questions, divide us. But so do people. Think of any famous person. Taylor Swift, John Howard, Buddy Franklin, whoever it might be, people will love him, people will hate him. And it's the same with Jesus. People will love him, people will hate him. People will listen to him, people will ignore him. People will believe, people won't believe. From the time Jesus walked the earth to now, he's divided people. But John writes that we might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, John 20, 31, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. See, whether you caravan or camp, use a PC or a Mac, it doesn't matter really. But when it comes to Jesus, John says that belief and unbelief is the difference between life and death. What you do with Jesus matters. It has significance for eternity. Well, in John 7, Jesus divides people. People love him, people hate him. People listen to him, people ignore him. People believe, people don't believe. People are unsure, people are sure. Right at the start, we're introduced to the Jewish leaders. And their response to Jesus puts them firmly on the side of unbelief. So if you're following along on your little cartoon strip now, we're at the first box, we're about to enter the first box. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee... He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders. Uh, did I hear someone talking about me? Uh, who are you? I'm a Pharisee. 
leader of the Jewish people, the well, Israelites. Okay, okay. Well, I was, I was talking about you. I and, thought you were. And while I've got you here, tell us, what do you want to do with Jesus? Jesus? We want to kill him. We're just waiting for a good opportunity. But not too far away is a big feast coming up. And we just might be able to get him there. Okay, enough of you, Jewish leader. Uh, if you've been following along, along in John, you won't be surprised by this response from the Jewish leaders. They've been against Jesus from the start, haven't they? But what might surprise us, what might take us by surprise, is unbelief from those close to Jesus those on the inside, those in his own family. Yeah, I did. Who are you? Oh, well, come over. You may as well, if you're going to crash my sermon, you may as well come over and have a chat to me. Uh, so, so you're in Jesus' bro zone, is that right? Yep. Yeah, and, and what do you think about your bro hiding out in Galilee? Time for him to go back to Judea. It's the perfect opportunity to get people back on the Jesus bandwagon. Okay, so you want your bro to go back to Judea to get people on the Jesus bandwagon. Uh, is, is there an opportunity to, to get people on that bandwagon coming up? Yeah, there's a big feast on, you know. It's time for Jesus to go public and impress them with his power. Have you heard what he can do? Um, I have heard what he can do. I've been looking at John 7, and I'm about to share with everyone here, but you interrupted me. Thanks for that. You can, you can go. There you go. You've got the Jewish leaders who see an opportunity at the feast for one reason, to kill Jesus, and you've got Jesus' brothers who see the feast uh, as a different kind of opportunity to get people back uh, with Jesus. Well, the big feast about to kick off was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it was a time full of joy and celebration. It was a harvest festival and it focused on God's provision. It looked back in the past to when God provided for his people uh, in the wilderness years and it looked forward to the future, anticipating God's future provision uh, where he would pour out his promised spirit uh, on his people. And crowds of people would hit up Jerusalem for this feast every year. Israelites would come from everywhere and camp together, just like they did in the wilderness. There'd be lines, food, drink, all that stuff. A little bit like the Collector Pumpkin Festival. Who went to the Collector Pumpkin Festival? I heard that it was dead set chaos, like 12,000 people or something, and just crowds of people from everywhere gathering together. Now, Jesus' brothers saw the festival of the tabernacles as an opportunity, as we heard. They wanted Jesus to increase his popularity, to make himself more popular, to bring back followers who'd turned away. And they say to Jesus in verse 4, No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, they're talking about the signs, show yourself to the world. But in the very next verse, we have the shocking truth, the shocking truth behind their request. And what's that? It's their continuing unbelief for even his own brothers 
were not believing in him. They would have said they believed that he was even the Christ, the long-promised rescuer of God's people. But what that meant, they totally had that wrong. Jesus glorified his Father, not himself. And the way of rescue was one of weakness, not one of power, leading to a cross, not a throne. See, it's possible to think you're a believer, but in truth not be. It's possible to think you know Jesus personally, but in truth not know him at all. These guys grew up with Jesus. They knew what he smelt like, they knew what his skin felt like, but here in John, they're placed firmly on the side of unbelief. Is what we believe about Jesus true? We need to listen to him on his terms, don't we? To have true understanding of who he is and who God is. See, you can grow up in a Christian family, but never listen to Jesus. You can go to church every week, but never listen to Jesus. You can be an insider, like me, in leadership, given responsibility, responsibility to teach people about Jesus, and yourself not listen to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to the feast with his brothers, uh, but he does go later. He and his father are in control, not them. And notice that he goes secretly, not publicly like his brothers wanted. And when he gets to the feast, what does he do? He doesn't perform these miraculous signs for all to see like his brothers want. He teaches. And it's his teaching that exposes more unbelief. We've seen the unbelief of the religious leaders. Now we're moving into the next box. Uh, The unbelief of his brothers. Sorry, the unbelief of the crowds. I just completely mucked that up. So we've seen the unbelief of the religious leaders, we've seen the unbelief of Jesus' brothers, now we're about to see the unbelief of the crowds. Picking up the story from verse 11, Jesus is causing a stir. The religious leaders are looking everywhere for him. It's real life, where's Wally? Only it's where's Jesus? But while they're combing Jerusalem, the crowds are talking about him. I just realised I haven't been... Oh, that's a shame. So that's my first picture. Um, The Jewish leaders and Jesus wandering around in Galilee. That's my second one. Jesus' brothers. Now we're up to this one. Sorry about that. So there's all kinds of people at this feast chatting about Jesus. They're trying to figure him out. Who was this guy, they wondered. But they didn't agree, they were divided. Look at verse 12. Some were saying he's a good man, but others were saying, no, he's deceiving the people. It's against this backdrop of division that Jesus begins to teach. And his teaching exposes more unbelief. At first, the crowds are amazed at what's coming out of Jesus' mouth. They know that he hasn't been to school. They know that he hasn't been a star pupil of one of the rabbis in the area. Yet you wouldn't know it by the way that he was speaking. But things turn when Jesus moves the spotlight from himself onto them. And he basically says, why are you trying to kill me? 
you're the ones who don't keep the law, I'm a true prophet, sent by God to reveal him. But after the crowds accuse him of being demon-possessed, Jesus turns the screws even more and he exposes the crowd's religious hypocrisy. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, the healing on the Sabbath, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? See, the Jews always went ahead and circumcised a boy at the right time. Didn't matter what day it was, whether it was the Sabbath or not. And if circumcision on the Sabbath was okay, involving one part of the body then why wasn't healing a whole person's body? It's one rule for them, it's another rule for Jesus. They were hypocrites and Jesus slams them for it in verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. You would have heard the expression, don't judge a book by its cover, Don't be quick to decide the value or the worth of something just by how it appears, how it first looks. Well, blind to their own hypocrisy, the Jews decide on Jesus from a human perspective. Jesus has just given them the view from above, but their hypocrisy prevents them from recognising Jesus' true identity the Christ, the Son of God, the one sent from Him. And it's tragic, isn't it? The danger of false belief here. The crowds put their faith in their religion, a religion that was meant to prepare them for Jesus, a religion that was meant to show them their need for Him, the law that was meant to show them that they needed something more. They couldn't keep it. But they'd twisted it, distorted it, and all kinds of inconsistencies had crept into their hearts. But what are the things that creep into our hearts? The things that are inconsistent with our faith. You're a different person at school to the person you are at church. You convince people that you've got life together. But when you get in the car after church, you fly off the handle. You do good things. You serve at church. You do good things for others to be seen by them. It's a show. You want to impress people, but it doesn't come from a heart of faith. It's no secret that the world hates religious hypocrisy, doesn't it? Christians are hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? But the thing is, so does Jesus. And he's shown us that here. Well, we've seen the unbelief of the religious leaders, the unbelief of Jesus' brothers and the unbelief 
of the crowds. But along the way, we've seen glimmers, haven't we, of people who are open, people who are receptive. We're going to see that a little bit more in the second half or the second part uh, of the sermon. Well, can you think of a time when someone's words or someone's teaching has made an impression on you? Maybe it was that, uh, that favourite teacher of yours back at school. Maybe it's a current teacher of yours at school. Some, something that just grabbed you. Perhaps it was a parent of yours, your mum or your dad, that sage advice, that sage teaching from mum or dad, hey? Maybe, just maybe. Well, continuing on from verse 25, Jesus' teaching... Jesus' words have made an impression, a huge impression. Is Jesus the Christ? I'll get my pictures up this time. Is Jesus the Christ? That's the question that people have. And the answer, in a nutshell, well, it's right down in verse 43, if you can skip down to there. The people were divided because of Jesus. There's all kinds of division here about whether Jesus ticked the right boxes to be the Christ. Some Jerusalem locals dismiss any possibility that Jesus could possibly be the Christ. He didn't come from the right place. Or rather, they knew where he was from. They asked the question whether he could be the Christ, but in verse 27 they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ comes... No one will know where he comes from. See, there was a view on the street that the Christ would appear suddenly, almost out of nowhere. But here Jesus is an unimpressive Galilean with no sudden appearance and looking nothing like a powerful, mighty rescuer. But it's Jesus' response to them here that really fires them up. Gets their blood boiling, actually. He shouts out in verse 28 and 29, so everyone can hear. So he's kind of going public here. He goes to the the feast in secret, but now he's going public. Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now it's hard to overstate how offensive Jesus is being here. You don't know God, but I do. You the most religious, you the most privileged, you the most educated, you who have God's words, the very scriptures written down for you, you don't know God. If you knew him, Jesus is saying, you would recognise me. Over and over again, Jesus says, what you do with him is how it determines whether you know God or not. How you respond to Jesus determines your relationship with God. John 5.23, whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. John 5, 42 and 43, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. See, if the Jews couldn't know God without Jesus, then no one can. No matter what your religion, 
no matter what your denomination, no matter what you say your relationship to God is, no matter what you think you can work out about God from the universe around us, from the wonderful creation that we, we can discern something of God from, at the end of the day, it all comes down to what you do with Jesus, how you respond to Him, because He's the one, John chapter 1, who comes full of grace and truth to reveal God to us. By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's how you come to know God the Father. Well, we've seen a lot of unbelief, as I said, the religious leaders, his own brothers, the crowds, and the Jerusalem locals here. But it's not everyone, is it? Some are closed to Jesus, but some are open. Some refuse to listen, but some are receptive. Many don't believe, but some or many, as it says, do. Look at verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in Him. They believed. They said, when the Christ comes, will He do more signs than this man? Belief based on signs, while not ideal, is better than no belief at all. And it would have been natural to wonder, after witnessing these signs that Jesus was doing, that pointed to who He was, whether He was the Christ. And many, at the very least, thought there was a good chance He was. We've always got to keep in the back of our minds that before the Spirit is poured out, belief in Jesus is complex. There's a believing that leads to believing, if you like. I was talking to Russell about this this morning. But nonetheless, it is described as belief here in John. And as we've seen, people were divided. Divided over these two questions. Is he the Christ? And how can we know? Is he the Christ and how can we know? But maybe the question we have is, but why should we care? There are lots of true things that don't matter, aren't there? Things that we could believe or not believe, and it wouldn't make that much difference in our day-to-day lives. So why should we care if Jesus is the Christ? Why should we care if He's the Son of God or not? What difference will it make if we believe? What will it mean if we come to Him? Will it be worth it? Well, let's take a look at Jesus' open-ended invitation now. And it's an invitation that extends to the world. It extends to everyone. He's even inviting his enemies here. And it's an invitation to believe and drink. Verse 37, On the last day and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. This feast that the Jews were celebrating, it involved a lot of water, tons of it. Because in the wilderness, what did God do for the Israelite people as they were wandering on their way to the promised land? God supplied them richly with water, didn't He? Well, with all this symbolism fresh in people's minds, 
all these water-pouring ceremonies, reminding them of God's amazing life-giving provision for his people, with all of this, Jesus stands up, and what does he do? He promises a continuous supply of living water. Living water. He's saying, I'm what this feast is all about. The fulfilment, what it all pointed to. Jesus is the one that provides the full reality of all that the feast is about, all that it anticipates as well in the future. See, the pouring out of the promised spirit that you can read about in the prophets that would come to those who believe, Jesus will be the one who gives it. Now, when Jesus said these words, the Spirit hadn't yet come. But we live in the age where the Spirit has come. We live in the age of the Spirit. And if you're someone who's thought that saving faith, that believing in Jesus is only really a decision to believe facts, that's all, nothing much more than that. Be done with that. It's so much more than that. It's coming to a spring in the desert when we are dying of thirst. Have you ever been really, really, really thirsty? Yeah, I played hockey yesterday, last night, after big day out, and I was really, really thirsty by the end of it. My mouth was dry, I was dying for a drink of water, and I bought a Coke. But it satisfied me, it was good. Coming to Jesus in our spiritual thirst satisfies our deepest spiritual needs. Do you know that satisfaction? Do you know that wonderful, the wonderful water that we drink when we come to Jesus, the wonderful thing that faith is, the life that Jesus brings? Believing is receiving Jesus as water for the soul. To receive Jesus you don't need to jump through any hoops either. You see, we live in a world that rewards you for effort, and there's a good thing about that, don't get me wrong. When, um, when I was a kid, I'd be playing hockey, another hockey illustration, and I used to, I used to always want to win the player of, Junior Player of the Week award. You'd get a certificate, but I didn't want the certificate, I didn't want to earn it because of the certificate, I wanted the McDonald's cheeseburger on the side that you ripped off and you took to McDonald's and got a free cheeseburger. But the, the thing was, I had to earn that. I had to be the best player that week. You, they didn't just give them out for free. I couldn't just go, run up and raid the coach's folder and like pull one out for myself and write my name on it. I had to earn it. Well, here, the only qualification, the only qualification for receiving Jesus is thirst. You see that? You just have to know that you need Him. Believe and drink and you will have life. Life that it's meant to be. Life in relationship with God. Life where He blesses you with forgiveness and cleansing. You know, Russell said before, it is life that is good, it starts now and goes on forever. I don't know if I got the order right there, but I, 
I've said that before as well, I stole it off Russell, it's a great summary. And as you, as you read on in John's Gospel, what does this good life that starts now and goes on forever look like? You know, you get to John 15 and it's lived out, the good life is lived out in obedience to the Father's commands, just like Jesus. And it's lived out in love for one another. That is how we, that people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. At Big Day Out yesterday, if you were there, you might remember Murray Smith speaking about the good life from 1 Peter. What did it look like? There were three things, but two of them, obedience and love. It's the same in John's Gospel. Who here, who here can uh, act out for me, maybe? And if you can't, that's okay. A dead, flapping fli- a dead flapping fish, kind of, not quite dead, an almost dead fish out of water up, at the, up the front here. Can anyone do that? A fish out of water? No, nah, that's okay, we don't have to do it. You reckon you can do it, Reuben? Okay, come on. Come and give it a go. You've got to be a fish out of water here for me. Oh yeah, you're looking pretty... You're looking like you're out of your natural environment. Okay, I'm going to chuck you into your natural environment now, not literally. Okay, now you're in the water and you're swimming. Oh, look at that. Beautiful, thanks. Give Reuben a round of applause. Without Jesus, without Jesus, we're a bit like the fish out of water, flapping around, unable to live as God made us to live. But with Jesus, we're restored to, to God the Father. We're enabled by the Spirit to live the good life as we were made for, swimming, thriving, full of life on the way to eternity. Isn't that wonderful news?